Welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, your host and CEO of Bregman Partners. This podcast is part of my mission to help you get massive traction on the things that matter most. We are fortunate to have with us today, Darren Roberts. He is the founding director of the Center for Sports Leadership and Innovation at the University of Texas. He spent seven years as an NFL and college football coach after graduating Harvard Law School. And and the book that we're here to talk with him about is Call an Audible, Let My Pivot from Harvard Law to NFL Coach Inspire Your Transition. And it's, it's, uh, it's a great book, full of lessons. And what's going to be very interesting is to see, you know, especially how he moved from Harvard Law to the NFL, um, why, how he approached it, the kinds of things that he learned, the kinds of things that that can teach us in terms of leading and pivoting in the moment moving from an idea or a dream to achieving something, either ourselves or through our organizations. So we are lucky enough to have Darren with us. Darren, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Hey, Peter. Thanks for having me. So Darren, let's start with why you wrote the book in the first place. Yeah. So for me, it was a, it was a matter of wanting to tell my own story. So I went from, from law school to the NFL as a coach and once I left coaching, I had a lot of people reach out to me and say, hey, I'd love to include your story as a chapter in my book, and, or I'd like to write a long article on you and, and sort of career pivots. So for me, it was an opportunity to sort of go back to my first love, which is writing, and really delve into the process and the experiences that I went through to go from law school to coaching. So it was a great process for me. It took eight months, uh, six days a week, 3.30 to 5.30 a.m., two hours a day. But I made the the commitment about a year ago to really buckle down because I had, like a lot of people probably do, so many Google documents and manuscripts, you know, chapters and endings. And so just had to buckle down and do it. And so I'm glad that I've been able to put this out into the world and, and that people are finding it, you know, a value. And and just to be clear, that so you were writing the book from three thirty a.m. to five thirty a.m. So that's me. So I have you know my wife and I we have five kids. So the spare time is at an all time you know minimum in our family, and I have a mild sleeping disorder, and so I'm up at three fifteen. So I decided you know I usually work out at around five, um, do that for an hour, come back, and then I take the kids to school, and I said you know. It was a great 24-hour coffee shop about a mile away from our home, and I told my wife, I'm just going to – I'm going to block off two hours a day. I don't want to interfere with anything going on at at home, so I'm going to do that in the morning. And 3.30 to 5.30, same coffee shop, same seat, you know, same coffee and blueberry muffin, and I intentionally disabled the Wi-Fi and just wrote for two hours and did that for, for eight months. And how much sleep do you get a night? I'm just curious. I'm about four and a half to five, um, and I can function well off of four and a half to five. So that's that's uh, that's where I am. Our kids are from seven down to five months, so um, I can help my wife out too because I'm already up. So you know, I'll do a little bit of the the burping and all that good stuff. But I usually average about four and a half. To five. Right. Wow. Okay, so I'm curious about uh, something that you've already mentioned and that you obviously talk about in the book. 
about your pivot from Harvard Law. And, and I think there's a lot of people who either can think about changes in their lives or think about new directions of their businesses or teams. And it's scary. It's scary because you're stepping, you know, every, every organization faces, if they're lucky, faces a choice sometimes around, you know, they've got this cash cow and that they need to take a risk on a new product or they, you know, or, or you, you just sort of see something changing in yourself or in your organization and you need to pivot. And, and yet I think that's very scary. It's very scary to move from a route in which you are already successful to making a choice that, you know, certainly many in society might question and you might question yourself. Tell us a little bit about how you make that kind of a choice and some of the struggle or challenge that you faced in making those kinds of decisions to leave Harvard Law and go to the NFL. Yeah, you know, this issue of risk is something that that I'm actually putting together a research team here at UT and we're going to start looking at a little more intentionally. I think that first, I'm the son of a Baptist minister. My dad would take me with him to weddings and funerals when I was very young. You know, I'd watch him uh, preside over funerals was one of the sort of the images that really stuck out for me. And so I've had this very real sense of mortality from an early age. And for me, I have been very wary of putting things into the present or the future tense. So I'll do this after retirement or I'll do this in 20 years. Um, I just felt like I don't know if that's a given. And so I'm going to do it now. So I think I think one thing to really think about in terms of when we're looking at risk is to sort of shift that time scale and to say, okay, more than likely you've been putting something off for successive years or months. At some point you have to just hit the, the go button. Um, also too, I think we tend to sort of inflate the no or the rejection or the bad experience. And so I've really been focused on saying, first of all, the answer is no before I ask. So I'm at least going to go from, you know, an expected output of 100% no to a 50% yes. And then two, I just think life's more interesting when we put ourselves in really challenging situations. You know, one thing I always tell my kids is, They'll stay in the deep end of the pool um, and they're learning how to swim now, which is sort of my metaphor for, you know, if you find yourself in a place where you feel like you are at the, at the top of the heap, then get out of there. I mean, you need to be the first person to get out of there, find new friends, find new environments. And so um, it's tough. I was at Harvard Law and people were going to work for Scalia and uh, the White House, right, and State Department and big firms. But for me... Harvard Law meant that I could take a gamble. And I think a lot of my classmates saw Harvard Law as a confining tool that they had to go into law. But I thought that's why I wanted to go there. And, you know, I was waitlisted four years in a row. So I really wanted to get in. But that was because I wanted the flexibility. Well, that's so interesting. So, so you know, you worked so hard to get into Harvard Law. It was not a simple thing. You worked so hard to get into Harvard Law. And... And then you made this decision to, in effect, leave it. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's good. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that's, you know, that's a hard pivot for people to make. Yeah. And, and it's true that you could sort of say, I hear what you're saying when you say, you know, I, I don't want to leave for tomorrow what I could do today. And life is, you know, risky in and of itself. 
but still to work so hard for something to get there and then decide, you know, the future that I worked so hard for is not the one that I actually want. Yeah. takes a tremendous amount of courage. And I'm curious what you can share about how you, you know, not the simplicity of it, the challenge of it, right? How you, how, how you well up the courage to make that kind of a choice and, and what you could offer to people who are in similar situations where they're in a situation that's good enough, that, yes. that has a lot of promise, and yet there's this inkling of something else and what advice you can give them and, and yes. kind of draw from yeah. your own experience. Yeah, I'll say a couple of things. My, the dean at the time was Elena Kagan, who's now in the Supreme Court. I talked with her and she said, you know, the last thing that you will find on your diploma when I hand it to you will be an expiration date, right? So um, legal problems aren't going anywhere. I think this speaks to the point of is the opportunity that you're looking at a rare one? So for me... I, I wrote 32 letters, you know, I wrote letters to every NFL team. I received 31 rejections and the Kansas City Chiefs were the only team that said yes. Mm-hmm. The opportunity to even be a training camp intern and, and mind you, Peter, no college, obviously no NFL playing experience. The opportunity to enter the NFL coaching ranks, even at the lowest level, was something rare as opposed to being the thousandth associate at insert law law firm here. Um, So I think really dissecting as someone who's looking at an opportunity, is this a rare moment? If it's rare, like, can I really replicate this experience in the future? If the answer is probably not, I think you should lean toward the yes column. That's one piece. Right. Um, But let me challenge you, Darren, on that too, because it wasn't an opportunity that just happened. It's an opportunity you sought after. You had to write 32 letters. Yes. So it was, it was an opportunity that you created. Now, yes, luck is involved. And yes, you had a receptive ear in one out of 32. But you made a, you know, a, uh, an, you took the initiative to make a choice to say, I'm going to write 32 letters, which in and of itself says, I, I'm dissatisfied enough with what I perceive to be my future, even though it's kind of really successful looking and I'm intrigued enough at this other thing. I'm going to try it. So maybe one of the lessons here, Darren, is you didn't sit at Harvard and say, okay, I'm going to go coach for the NFL. You said, I'm going to write 32 letters, which is not the same thing. Yeah. You know, I, and I, you know, it's interesting you mentioned this because I think that I always will say that people, you know, you dream in big picture, you need to execute with laser-like focus, right? A lot of people don't ever shift from Microsoft Word to Excel. And, and this is what I mean. We get stuck in the dream phase and, oh, it'd be great to be on the sidelines and hobnobbing with Bill Belichick. But for me, more importantly, I needed to open up an Excel file, get the mailing address for every NFL team, go to every NFL website, look at the bios of every coach, find some connection, write the cover letter, craft the first sentence to sort of tweak it for the coach, you know, buy the envelopes. Like that. You have to be very intentional about it and say, I'm sending six letters to the AFC West um, and half of the AFC East on November the 1st. And that's where I think people miss the boat is that they get stuck in the, the TV viewing phase and they don't move from Microsoft Word to 
Let's get into Excel and really plan this thing out and be deliberate. And I think that's, 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 listen, I, I coach, you know, I, I teach 300 students a year at the university of Texas. You know, I'm coaching NFL players who've left the league and they're trying to transition back in. I coach, um, executives at, at companies. There's always this difficulty in going from this big idea to the implementation phase. And that's where I think I've really tried to focus, you know, most of my effort. And it sounds like one of the important things here too, is that you didn't actually commit to coaching the NFL, even if you got 10 responses that said yes, that you committed to write the letters, that there's something, you know, I, I actually applied to law school and I wasn't sure that I wanted to go to law school. And once I got in, I made the decision, I don't want to go to law school. And, yeah. but I, I wasn't making, when I was applying, I wasn't making a decision to go to law school. I was interested and engaged enough to want to go the next step, but that yes. didn't necessarily commit me to saying, I'm going to follow through and go to law school if I get in. And I, one of the things that I'm hearing you say is that, I mean, in, in your case, you, you took that 32nd letter and you, and you pursued it and you, and you went to coach, but you know, you weren't making this huge pivot in your life at the point at which you wrote the letters, you were committing enough to reach out and explore to the next stage. Yeah. You know, the, the mind is a, you know, the mind is a wandering tool and oftentimes people will get stuck in the, well, if I get the job, then they're going to put me with the wide receivers and I don't know anything about receivers. And I, and we start to create these scenarios that more than likely won't come to fruition. And I always tell people, don't, you can't vet the opportunity on the front end, right? At least put it out there. No one's going to break down my door and say, you better report for the Chiefs tomorrow if they offer the position to me, right? Right. Um, but they're also not going to break down my door and say, hey, will you come and work for the Chiefs if I don't write the letter? So I'm a, I'm a firm believer, Peter, that you just need to give yourself as many options as possible at any given time. Cast wide net. You know, don't be limiting on the front end. Cast a wide net and then make the best decision based on the you know the opportunities that are available to you. Great. Now I want to shoot uh, a bunch of questions at you, Darren. Of things that you mentioned in the book, and I, I'd love to hear some sort of brief answers around them because I, I think they'll be interesting to people. One is um, you mentioned that you have been allergic to any suggestion that you that a person keep a journal, and yet you started to keep one. Um, you know, what was your, you know, briefly, what was your experience about that? Why do you think it was important? A couple of things. One, I think it was for me to have a phone in meetings, um, it would not have gone over well. So I had to really go back to good old paper and pen. And also it was interesting because I think I was more thoughtful about what I recorded and so I'm a fan now. I mean, that experience changed the way that I look at journaling. I do think it's important for people who want to be more intentional about recording their thoughts. Right. Um, you talk about creating tendency files on your competition, understanding why and when they do what they do. That seems like it could be very, very useful for leaders and organizations. Can you explain more about it? Yeah. You know, I watched NFL games yesterday on Sunday, and um, coaches, you find in the league that certain coaches, they have tendencies. They'll go for it on fourth down more than other coaches. They're going to kick a field goal more than other coaches. I think aside from the sports context, really looking at who your competitors are, even people in your organization and saying, okay, 
can I start to map out how Cindy or Sam will react to a certain set of circumstances? Um, and that helps a leader to really think through, okay, what would my response be if this is what I was, you know, if this is what we see on the other end? You know, it's, it's this great alternative to personality assessments in organizations, but to really be thoughtful and say for your colleagues and for your clients and maybe for competitors, I love this idea of saying, what are their tendencies? What do they tend to do? How do they tend to operate? I'm not, and, and I love the word tendency because you're not putting them in a box and you're not saying this is who this person is. I'm just, I'm noticing a pattern. And what are the patterns that you notice of the people around you? And then how can you use those in order to build stronger relationships, in order to collaborate more effectively, in order to communicate you know, in a way that, that gets received? Um, I, I think it's such an interesting approach. And uh, I could see why it could be very, very useful for people and organizations. Yeah, and I would say this with my coaching clients. I, I, I will say, hey, listen, I see you going down this road. You know, it looks like this is the way that you responded in the past. And so you can couch it in nice language so that it comes off as endearing. Let's think about this as an option, whereas you would probably want to lean here. Let's think about this as another uh, option for you. Yes, and I can imagine that you don't even have to tell them what you've observed, but you could integrate it into what you're saying, meaning if you're communicating with someone, what you, what you reflect is that you, you see them. And people yes. want to be seen, so you see them, and you could you know, address the communications in a way in which you have a higher likelihood that they will hear you or work effectively with you because you've been able to see something about them that kind of helps you learn what they respond and react to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, here's a hard one. You talk about staying even, right? Not getting too high, not dipping too low, not showing your disappointment. It makes a tremendous amount of sense, and it's a great concept. The hard part about it is in practice, right? Which is somebody does something, and how do you not get triggered, and how do you not respond? And I, I actually... Just this morning, I had a situation where um, I'm trying to think about how to describe this in short, but basically some, I was with my wife and somebody came up to us and we gave a donation to an organization. Somebody came up to us and spoke entirely to my wife and thanked my wife and completely dismissed me, like didn't even look at me. Now, it's not a big thing, but I found myself triggered. I found myself thinking, huh. Why, you know, like I'm, I'm very invisible here and, you know, that doesn't feel good. But I noticed that. And the challenge in those situations is not to blow them out of proportion, is not to make a big deal about them, but to stay even. And it's hard to do, right? It's hard to do when you feel something. It's hard to not respond or react to it. So my question to you is not about the concept or the idea, but in practice, how do you do this? It all comes back to breathing. I mean, I, this is something that's not in the book. I've really embraced breathing and inserting pauses as the two techniques to do this. Because what happens is that um, the heart rate starts going up, you're upset, and already your mind is thinking through what are the verbal responses. And at that point, I just have to shut myself down and really put myself in timeout and say, I'm going to intentionally breathe, and then I'm going to think about how to respond in a better way. So um, this is something that really, to be honest with you, you know, in the NFL or coaching, 
no one was coming and talking to us about breathing. I and mean, this was not something that I was good at, but in practice, this is something that I work on with my students, really stopping, breathing, and thinking through and pausing does a lot to sort of quell that storm. That's great. And I, I, I don't know if you know, but I wrote a book called Four Seconds, which is all about that pause, right? It's all about that breath and that pause. So that feels really important. Uh, you say that if you want to advance, you have to overreach to become the ultimate party crasher, right? Mm -hmm. That seems to come with a risk that you end up getting dismissed. So how do you balance the goal of overreaching with the risk of being rejected? Yeah, so I think that um, for me, it goes back to that calculus that the answer is no anyway. So I'm always thinking through and I'm always encouraging people, you need to be applying for jobs that, for which you are not qualified. Right. If, if you can check all the boxes, if you meet all the requirements, this probably isn't a position that's going to challenge you. I think in the, at the micro level within an organization, you need to constantly be putting yourself in a position that's stretching your mental limits. Right. So if you're on the marketing team, um, is there a way for me to jump on another project that's going to really stretch what I know about marketing? I think it's just easy for us to always revert to the mean and we get into this. We're, you know, we're chasing homeostasis and we want everything to remain normal. For me, the most rewarding experiences are ones which are tense at times, right, are challenging. But I come out on the other end and think, wow, I really grew because this forced me to think in different directions. Now, I could imagine someone might say, you know, I, you know, I want a job as the leader of the organization, but I'm totally unqualified to be the leader. So let me actually apply for a lesser job, a job that can get me in the organization, that get me, and then I can work my way up. How do you assess the amount of overreach that's appropriate or that makes sense versus completely shooting for the stars and missing every single time? Yeah, so for me, I think it's, it's a matter of is the industry new or not. So for me, I'm going from law to coaching, no playing experience. I need to go in at the ground level. Right? No one was going to hire me to be the defensive coordinator of any high school team in America. No industry experience. Different though now, if I am looking, you know, I'm in academia, I teach, I run a center for sports leadership and innovation, I could probably make a very good case to a company like Nike to bring me in at a, at a leadership position because I've had experience, NFL, University of Texas. So I think it's a matter of are you breaking into an industry – for which you have no prior experience, you're probably going to have to humble yourself and take a position lower than you think you should have. Or do I have some bullet points in the resume that fit with the new position? If the answer is yes, then I think you probably have some legitimacy to kind of overreach and go for a position that may not match up with your background. That's great. You make a point, put yourself in a position to make a play, then make a play. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so one thing I found was that you know, I walked into this organization, the Kansas City Chiefs, and we had employees everywhere. There weren't that many people who were just willing to do the work, right? Like um, everyone likes the idea of the work getting done. Few people like the idea of doing the work. And so I constantly put myself in a position to go from office to office and ask, hey, is there anything that I can do? Can I help you out with a project? Do you need me to scout this opponent? And so I think that having that willingness to constantly ask how you can add value 
is important. You know, I listen to Gary Vee. You know, he rubs people the wrong way sometimes, and some people love him. But one thing he talks about is adding value. That has to be the focus. And I don't care if you are a partner in a law firm and you're 55 or you're fresh out of college and you're 21. People who can add value and do it intentionally and with a smile, those people tend to get what they want in an organization, right? So um, I think you have to constantly ask to add value. And then once you get that job, your focus has to be on delivering. Any last pieces of advice you have for listeners after, you know, all of your experience so far of, of moving from qualified to unqualified to then qualified, you know, learning and developing and, and kind of getting in there? Any, any sort of parting words of advice? A couple of things. People always ask me, how do I find my purpose? I don't have great answers for that. I do think you need to take an assessment of what do you do when you don't have to do anything? You know, what kind of readings are you consuming? What are you watching? What kind of podcast are you listening to? There may be a thread there that will give you a sense of what you think you want to do. Um, the second thing I will say is that you got to be intentional. Like people talk about it, but you have to get into Microsoft Outlook or Google Calendar and color code different parts of, of your week um, and do an assessment on the front end and the back end as to, hey, here are my top three projects. Did I allot the amount of time for those to become successful? So I think being intentional is key. Last thing, just to reiterate, I just think breathing. I think we don't breathe enough. We're scrolling on our on our you know iPhones, and we don't take the time to stop and pause and really reflect. So that would be my third piece of advice. Um, and live life now. It's not it's not happening tomorrow for sure, right? So make sure you're living it today. So everybody, as as I give these last notes, take a deep breath, maybe take two deep breaths as you listen to me. This will be, well, it'll be the first step in taking Darren's advice and, and putting it into practice. Uh, Darren Roberts has been with us. His book is Call and Audible. Let my pivot from Harvard Law to NFL Coach inspire your transition. Darren, thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Peter, thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Bregman Leadership Podcast. If you did, it would really help us if you subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. A common problem that I see in companies is a lot of busyness, a lot of hard work that fails to move the organization as a whole forward. That's the problem that we solve with our Big Arrow process. For more information about that or to access all of my articles, videos, and podcasts, visit peterbregman.com. Thank you, Claire Marshall, for producing this episode, and thank you for listening.